Um, no, it's an absolute joy to be with you this morning. Um, as Rachel said, I've uh, written a book called Embrace the Journey. And I called it that because so many times in our life, God gives us these amazing mountaintop moments of incredible miracles that he's done. And I always describe missions as getting a front row to watch God at work. It's a front row seat at watching God do what only he can do. And I love it. It's a joy. Um, but equally through our lives, we go through times where it's not the mountaintop moment. We go through significant times in our life where it feels like the valley moments. And I think sometimes as Christians, sometimes as people in general, we only ever focus on the mountaintop moments. We focus on the Instagram moments now, as it were. But life is full of valley moments. And so the book is full of very honest stories as well of what God's done, of how Oftentimes, it's the valley moments where we're shaped far more than we're ever shaped on a mountaintop. The mountaintops are incredible, and I'm thankful for those moments. But it's been the valley moments where God's begun to shape and mold my character far more than has ever happened on a mountain. And I've come to realize that actually, it's in the valleys where the water flows. It's in those exact moments that his spirit comes in such a sweet and tender and powerful and yet beautiful way. And so the book is full of lots of different stories of, of what, what you would naturally call high and low, but actually it's the mountains and the valleys and both I've become learned to become thankful for. Um, so if you're not in the book club, you can pick a copy of that up. We've got an information desk outside. So before you rush off for your Sunday lunches, and I know your stomachs are about to start talking to you if they're not already, but before you dive out for your Sunday lunch, please come stop by the table. You can pick up a copy of the book. We've got other different things, all of which goes back into our missions work. Um, you can also, there's you should have found on your chair uh, a booklet full of different things that we've done over the last decade now. So lots of different things in there that will help you to pray for us because going forward, I would love for you guys as a church to commit to praying for us. We do a lot of work around the world and some of the nations that we now work in um, come with other challenges. So having people standing with us, supporting us, and praying for us literally means the world. So please take that out with you. Don't leave it on your chair, but take it out with you this morning. Okay, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and I'm just going to read a few verses from verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. 
Growing up in church, um, if someone would have said, I'm going to speak on Thomas this morning, I would have sat there and thought, Thomas, right, which one of the disciples was that? But if they'd have stood and said, okay, I'm going to speak on doubting Thomas, I'd have been like, ah, yeah, I know that one. He was the one who in the crucial moment messed up. He was the one who'd walked with Jesus for three years. He'd talked with him. He'd ate meals with him. He'd seen Jesus raise the dead. He'd seen Jesus multiply food. He'd seen Jesus turn water into wine. He'd seen Jesus do some incredible things. He'd also witnessed Jesus when Jesus had said, after three days, I will raise the temple. And so you sit there and you think, Thomas... How can you get it so wrong? How can you fluff it up quite so badly? You literally walked with Jesus. What an honor. You literally sat and ate with him. How could you get it so wrong? But just before I pick up my stone to hurl at Thomas, I'm just going to contemplate for a moment of the moment where in 2014, I was uh, taken into a side room. My husband had malaria at the time. And I was taken into a side room and told that my 27-year-old husband had got two, maybe three hours left to live. In that moment, <laughs> how full of faith was I? In that moment, did I stand up and declare in the face of the doctor, no, I rebuke you, get behind me, Satan. My husband will live and not die. Or did I actually sit, holding a bin, just wrenching into it? Because sometimes we just need to put away our judgments and our criticisms and be real. And instead, it's so easy to sit throwing stones of, oh, Thomas, if that had been me, I would have done this, that, and the other, and oh, Thomas. But if we're really real and really reflect, how many times can we learn of what it is to have faith? Now, I shared this story in a church recently, and I forgot to say that my husband lived. Now, I was hoping the fact he was sat with me on the front row kind of gave the hint. They didn't get it. So just in case this morning, I'm sat with my husband this morning. He lived. But if you want to know all the details, you have to book, find, buy the book to really find out. Matt, Matt always says, you tell people they have to buy the book to see if I lived or not. Um, but he stole the punchline by being here, so I can't say that. Um, but before I throw my stones at Thomas I'm just going to be real for a moment and reflect of the honesty of there are times we all fluff it there are times we all mess up but what I love about the Bible is it says now Thomas the twin growing up in church I obviously presumed when I read that that Thomas had a twin sibling he's got a twin brother or sister because obviously it says Thomas the twin so he's obviously a twin but actually as I studied this do you know Thomas doesn't have a twin sibling do you know he doesn't have a twin brother or sister? So why is he known as Thomas the twin when he doesn't have a twin sibling? Why, why is that? Well, theologians believe it's because from the moment where Thomas touched the wounds in Jesus, he was so transformed that locals began to call him a twin of Jesus. The man that I had written off as the doubter, the man that I had written off as the one who messed up in a really crucial moment, Locals knew him as a twin of Jesus. Is that not the cry of all our hearts to become a twin of Jesus Christ? That when people see you, they see Jesus. And yet here I was in my judgments, writing off the same man that the Bible refers to as a twin of Jesus. Wow. And do you know Thomas was the first person to take the gospel of Jesus into what we now know on our map as India and Pakistan. Nations that I'm trying to get influence in those exact same nations, the one that I had written off growing up,
was the one who took the gospel there first. The one who literally gave his life to take the gospel there first. And I don't know what labels have been put on you. Or dare I say it, what labels you've put on yourself. Because sometimes actually the worst labels that we carry are the ones we put on ourselves. The one that says, oh, no, no, I, 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 can't, I can't do that. The amount of times I said, I can't do this. I'm a behind the scenes kind of girl. I'm a, I'll get my hands mucky, but leave me behind the scenes. I'm, I'm very happy there. Thank you very much. And how many times do we say things over ourselves of what we cannot and can't do? But sometimes when we just say yes to Jesus, despite our failings, despite our flaws, despite our insecurities, despite whatever label you've put on yourself as to why you could not and should not serve Jesus. Let me tell you, at the other side of your yes to Jesus today, are miracles of transformation, miracles that God wants to do through your life, but he just needs hearts that say yes to him, hearts that are submitted and say, okay, I don't know what it's going to look like, but yes, Jesus, here I am. Send me, here I am, Jesus. Use me in and through my community. Use me, Jesus, to touch some wounds you see, I look at the body of Christ today and I still see wounds. I look at the body of Christ who doesn't yet know Jesus. They're going to become the bride of Christ. But for those people, I still see wounds too. And sometimes we just need to become participants in the lives of the broken. To not sit back as spectators, but to be willing to be a people who get our hands dirty, as it were. You see, you can know all about the meaning of compassion. You can know how the Latin word breaks down and... You can know all about the meaning, but unless you've ever felt it, it's meaningless. But once you begin to feel the compassion of Christ for his lost and broken, that's when we get involved. The scripture says, look and see. And the Greek for the word see there is to see with the mind, it's to perceive. It's to become acquainted with by experience. So this is not a passive look. It's to become acquainted with it by experience. And sometimes in our life, God will take you on a journey where you become acquainted with by experience. My mum tells me stories of being a very little girl, three and four year olds, and I, I would tell her that I'm going to be a missionary in Africa. Uh, I don't come from a family heritage of missionaries. And my family are born in a town, live in the town, die in that same town. Like, we don't travel. For us... A big journey was driving two hours to go and stay in a caravan for two weeks holiday. You know, that was a big deal growing up. Um, so I would, as a three and four year old, say, I'm going to be a missionary in Africa. And she yes, baby, of course you are. Um, but I believe God had placed something there. You know, the, the Bible talks about we're formed in our mother's womb. And I think we're good at understanding that physiologically, that our bones and our matter is put together by God. But actually, I believe it's even far deeper than that. I believe literally as he is shaping and molding you, his literal fingerprint is upon your life. His plans and his purposes are already there right from our mother's wombs. The only thing standing between us and the destiny that God's got for us is our obedience. And that's a scary thought if you let it sink in. But the only thing stood between you and the destiny that God has got for your life is you your heart to say yes, or your resistance in saying no. But Thomas, in the moment of touching that wound, 
It became acquainted with by experience. Fast forward through my teen years and I thought I wanted to go and study law. I've always been really passionate about injustice. Injustice to me is like a red rag to a bull. And um, I would often, as I was the youngest of three growing up, so when mum would serve the dishes, serve the plates, I would literally, and, and I don't believe this, I don't believe this could possibly be true, but my mother insists, I would apparently count my sister's chips. And if they had more than me, oh, there was trouble. I'm from Yorkshire. There was trouble at Mill. And um, justice is like a big deal to me. And always has been, particularly in the area of food. But anyway, in other areas too. And so I thought I would tackle that through law. Also came with a nice wage packet. So, you know, I'll take that. Thank you very much. But all of a sudden, something happened in my teen years where I became acquainted with by experience. I was out on a short-term missions trip to Sierra Leone and we were doing big gospel campaigns. We saw God do incredible wonders out there from the blind seeing to the death hearing to the lame walking. It was literally phenomenal. But I remember in the, in the daytime walking through the streets and I met this little girl called Felicity and she was nine years old and simply had no shoes. Now I was a student at the time, so being a typical student means I had no money. I had literally 50 pence with me that day. And I saw this little girl had no shoes, and so I took her to the marketplace and bought her a pair of pink flip-flops that cost me 50 pence. This was no huge act of generosity. This was actually an insignificant moment, or so I thought. I bought her the flip-flops and then said, okay, come back tonight. We're doing the big gospel campaign. Come and hear all about this Jesus I've been telling you about. Well, the evening comes by and myself and the team are all stood outside. The cars are ready to take us through to the gospel campaign. And all of a sudden, little Felicity came running down the hill towards us. And she's got this huge smile on her face because for the first time in her life, she's wearing shoes. And she's thrilled. And so um, I met with her and she said, should I wait in the hotel? I said, no, we're literally just about to go in the cars now. You can travel with us, that's fine. She was a little girl living on the streets, no mum or dad. You can travel with us, that's okay. And she said, yes, but shouldn't I wait in your bedroom? Now, if she'd have turned to my husband or any of the guys on the trip and said that, I would have understood what this little girl was asking. But I was in my early 20s and she was nine. When I was nine, my old concept was playing with Barbie dolls. And I remember looking at this little girl and thinking, no, she couldn't possibly. So I asked her a third time, and sure enough, she thought I'd spent 50 pence on her so that I could have her body. Now, I'd read about children selling their bodies for a bottle of Coke. I'd read about all this happening all over South America and different areas and tragic stories, but nothing can quite prepare you for the moment a child looks you in the eyes and thinks you deserve their body for the sake of 50 pence. That broke something in me that day, that something deep was scarred that day. See, no child should lose their innocence. She'd been abused by both men and women living on the streets, but by the age of nine, her whole self-worth was a pair of flip-flops. Her whole self-worth was 50 pence. And I remember that day just making a promise to God, I'll give my life to this. That's why we call it one by one. We have the honor of working with thousands of kids now, but we call it one by one because quite literally that one little girl changed my life. And the heart was, God, I'll give my life to this, even if it's only ever 
for one. I'll give my life to this. You see, I hear of the incredible evangelists who can stand on a stage in front of thousands of people and that's incredible, but guess what? I can't do that. I don't want to do that. That's not who I am. But one, I can do that. I can love them. That one person that God puts across my path, day in, day out, I can stop for that one and touch that wound. See, if I would just have eyes to see. I guess the scary thing is, is how many ones have passed before us that we've not even noticed. Because we're so busy doing the big things, doing the important things. How many ones have gone past us day in, day out? How many wounds have surrounded our lives that we've not even seen, not even noticed? And my prayer today is that God would give us eyes to see because there are wounds all around our lives. You don't have to go out to Sierra Leone to see wounds. They're right here on our doorstep too. And Thomas that day became acquainted with by experience and it transformed him. But then it goes on to say, reach your finger here and put it into my side. And the word there in the Greek is the word balo. It's where we get the English word ball from. And it quite literally means to throw, to cast, or to pour out. And the truth is, once you see the wounds, there's a demanded, a reaction that's demanded from you. And to not react and to not do anything is still a reaction. Don't convince yourself otherwise. To choose to do nothing is still a reaction. But will we be ones to say, okay, I'll throw myself into this. That God, I'll, I'll pour out my life. That you might be able to do something to the wounded that surround my life. I remember a few years ago, we went out to Pakistan and we were actually going there for a one-off trip. <laughs> or so I told my mum. My mum's a worrier. And she's only just got her head around the fact that I go out to the outbacks of Kenya. We're not in the big cities in Kenya. We're not in the nice tourist areas. I, I'm pretty sure some people think I just go and do safaris all day long. I wish. I live in a mud hut and I work with the most beautiful people in rural villages and I love it and I actually prefer it to the safaris. But anyway, my mum's only just got her head around that and especially when your husband very rudely nearly dies because of it, you know, just how inconvenient. But she's just got her head around that and that's just okay. And then I call her up and I say, okay, mum, I'm going out to Pakistan. And she's like, no, no, you're not. Mm -mm. And um, I remember calling her and saying, okay, don't worry, we're just going for the Dignity Project. The, a little intro on the clip showed it, but the Dignity Project is basically an anti-trafficking campaign that we do. We go into primary schools and teach girls all about their body. We, we equip them with reusable sanitary products because many, many girls miss a quarter of their education because for one week every month they have to wait at home in the mud hut. They don't get to go to school. And because of that, by the time they finish primary school, they've missed a quarter of education. They can't go on even to secondary education, let alone higher. And it's at this point traffickers come with their job offers. Come work for me in the city, be a cook, a cleaner, a nanny. Come be a model, whatever line they think the girl may buy. And then these girls are never seen or heard of ever again. And we found that out because of our village in Kenya. We had two mums approach us saying, can you pray for my missing kid? And so we launched the Dignity Project uh, to help these girls. We've now reached over 20,000 girls. But we had the absolute joy of taking it into Pakistan. Now, the beautiful part of the Dignity Project for me 
is that we wrap the whole day up by saying actually no price could ever be put on you because the highest price has been paid for you through Jesus Christ. But because the Dignity Project is incredibly practical, doors are open for us to go and take it. Doors that would never be open for our school's outreach team, never open for our evangelistic team, but the Dignity Project, the doors are wide open. And so we're able to go straight in with the gospel of Jesus Christ through this very practical tool. Well, nations like Pakistan opened up because of the Dignity Project. And so I called my mom in 2018 and I said, we're going out to Pakistan. It's just a four-day trip. We're going to reach 1,100 girls. Going to get in, going to get out. Don't worry. Well, we did the project and many of the girls responded to Jesus, which was incredible. But on the last day of that trip, they took me into a brick factory. Now, I'd never heard anything about bonded labor. I'd never read about it even. I'd never heard anything about it. I didn't know that that form of slavery existed. But on the last day, they took me into the brick factories. And I remember walking around and just seeing hundreds of families trapped in modern-day slavery. But as I say, my only concept of slavery at this moment in time is human trafficking. And human trafficking is all covered up. Everything's hidden because everybody knows it's wrong. And yet here we were, walking into this brick factory where the slavery was so blatant, it was so open, they allowed us to just walk round it and nothing was hidden or covered up. There was a blatant arrogance to this slavery that just astounded me. That in 2022, we're even still talking about slavery. How does that even happen in our day and age? But I remember walking in and meeting all these families and so... I met with this one particular family and said, how are you here? Like, how did you end up trapped in a life of slavery? What, what's your story? And he said, well, 13 years ago, me and my wife were pregnant with our firstborn. And everything was fine until she went into labor. And it transpired very quickly. She needed an, uh, an emergency C-section. The problem was the cesarean was going to cost $150. I'm a poor guy. I don't have $150. He knew that if he went to a bank, he'd probably be declined the loan because he's a poor guy, can't pay it back necessarily. And so, and he, but even if not, it would take weeks to process the loan. And meanwhile, his wife needs the surgery now. And so in order to save his wife and his unborn child, he did the only thing he knew to do. He took a loan of $150 from a brickmaster. Paid for the surgery, everything went fine. Mum and baby delivered well, everything great. Except 13 years later, here I am looking at this mum and dad and their now teenage son. They've since gone on at a couple more kids. So now a family of six who for 13 years have worked for seven days a week, 14 hours a day, making bricks to pay back a debt of $150. I remember saying, well, how much do you earn now? I mean, surely 13 years you've paid off $150. And he said, no, now we are $2,500 because the interest upon the loan is so great that no matter how many bricks we make, we'll never pay it back. The brutal reality of bonded labor is the debt is a lie. They've paid that debt back 10 times over, but that debt binds them in bonded labor. It holds them in this lie and this trap of slavery. Well, being a typical woman, I wanted to fix it quick. Let's, let's fix it and move on. And so I remember thinking, well, we can do a just giving page and see this family set free. I might not be able to do it for every family, but we'll stop for the one, right? I can do it for this family. Let's do a just giving page and see this family set free today. 
except the translators looked at me and smiled to this naive Western girl and said, well, to someone in the bloodline, it's two and a half thousand dollars. But for someone coming outside to redeem them, it would be double, triple, quadruple, because the reality is the slaves are worth far more to the brickmaster than the value of the debt itself. The debt is just a lie. And so there's no quick fix to this. And so we came home burdened, knowing we had to do something. It was a wound that we'd become acquainted with by experience. We'd seen this wound that was brutal and cruel. And we knew we just had to touch it somehow. And so I remember us saying, okay, God, what do we do in this situation? How can we make a difference here? And so we felt to build a safe house out in Pakistan. We've managed to rescue. We've actually now rescued 85 kids out of slavery. But the kids in the safe house now get a, a bedtime. They get a bed to sleep in about eight hours a night. They get regular meals. They get an education so that in, when they are adults, they can go on and gain real employment, therefore paying off their family's debt at the blood rate and securing their whole families out of slavery because they've got real employment. I remember we went out for the opening of the home in 2019 and it was a party. We actually started with 39 kids and for the 39, it was an absolute celebration. But we made the fatal error on that exact trip of going back into the brick factories. And the clip actually showed it. There was this one moment where I was sat on a pile of bricks and these kids just came up. Started with one little girl, just began playing pat a cake with this little girl and all of a sudden loads of kids were gathering because these kids have not had a childhood. These kids don't know what it is to play. And so a simple game of pat a cake. Pat a cake would hold my son's attention for 0.3 seconds. But a pat a cake amongst kids who've never had a childhood. <laughs> it was incredibly entertaining. And so all of a sudden I look up and there's hundreds of kids. The ones that we weren't able to rescue yet. The ones that are still bound in bonded labor. And yet again, you know when you just... Think, okay, God, you've got to do something in this situation. How many times do we see injustices in the world and we sit there and say, okay, God, what are you going to do in this situation? And I think so many times God looks back at us and says, okay, daughter, okay, son, what are you going to do to make an impact in this situation? What are you going to do to love the wounded that surrounds your community and your life? What are you going to do in your community? What are you going to do to carry my heart to the people that are the least, the last, and the lost? What are you going to do to touch some wounds? And so we decided there and then that if we can't get all these kids out right now, although that is what we're absolutely contending for, but until that day, we'll commit to going in. And so we launched Sunday School in the brick factories. This is no ordinary Sunday school. To do Sunday school in a nation like Pakistan, in and of itself, is an honor, because actually to convert people is illegal in Pakistan. So to do Sunday school there is an honor. But to do Sunday school in a brick factory in Pakistan is just an absolute joy, because we get our incredible teams on the ground, carriers hope, carriers love, carriers truth, into the middle of quite literally the enemy's backyard quite literally the darkest of possible territory. You don't even want to know the atrocities that go on in those places. And to go into Sunday school in a place like that, the very first thing those kids are learning to read and write is this, this scripture. The very first things they learn to read and write are Bible verses that our team are teaching them. And to see these kids come alive, even in the midst of brutal circumstances right now, is an incredible joy. 
But as a result of being boots on the ground, uh, we received a phone call last year. And I don't know if the, the guy on the keyboard wants to come up as I close out. But I remember we went out last year uh, in 2000. And, um, no, I got a phone call, sorry, last year, uh, May last year. And I'd just come up with my master plan for one by one. You see, carrying a missions organization through a global pandemic certainly comes with its challenges. We'd had several people who helped uh, support, had to pull out because they were made redundant and different things because of the pandemic. We were going through challenges in our own life and it was just a painful season. And I remember writing my master plan. And my great master plan that I told God of what we would do, era number one, uh, but I told God, this is how we're going to carry one by one through. We're not going to take on any new kids. We're not going to take on any new staff. We're not going to start any new projects because we're just going to batten down the hatches and ride out the storm. He said, I already got hundreds of kids in my care and 80 staff. And I thought I was being responsible by looking after the kids and staff already in my care. That's been wise and responsible. And so here, God, here is my master plan of how we're going to ride out the pandemic. This is what we're going to do. Just when I come up with my wonderful master plan, my team call and say, Becky, we've just heard of a three-year-old. We called her Mercy just to protect the family's identity. The three-year-old who's been raped and murdered. Three-year-old. And her body was just left on the floor of the brick factory for people to just step over because, well, she's just a girl. And, well, she's just a slave. And I just made my master plan, telling God of what we were going to do to survive. I remember thinking, how in the world would I ever look at Mercy's mum in the eyes and say, okay, well, after the pandemic's passed, then we'll help. Or, well, once my own life is more comfortable, well, then I'll reach out and help. I can't do that. Actually, last October, I had the joy of going and sitting with Mercy's mum, just praying with her, just holding her, just crying with her because there's no words that can fix a situation like that but the love of Jesus the healing power of Jesus and um, I remember in that moment thinking okay God <laughs> there goes the master plan but okay we will double our work in Pakistan it makes no sense logistically it makes no sense rationally but we will double our work and so I remember calling my board of one by one and saying, okay, I just want you to know, we're doubling our Sunday school teams. So we're gonna go from working in 24 brick factories to working in over 50 brick factories. And actually I'm gonna double the size of the safe house. I remember the board saying, well, do we have the finance in place to do that? No, but I've seen God so many times. The second we say yes, I've seen him come through in ways that I can't even understand, in ways that I can't manipulate or foresee. All he's waiting for is a heart that says yes. And as we said yes, God began to move on our behalf. We were able to double the size of the safe house, taking in another 35 kids last December. So we've now got 85 kids in the safe house. 85 kids who never have to go through what Mercy went through. 85 kids, 50 of whom are girls never have to be raped, never have to be touched inappropriately in the safety of a home. But I think sometimes the challenge to us is life can throw curveballs 
Life comes through difficult situations and it's in those seasons where it's tempting to say, okay, God, well, once my life's better, once this situation's sorted, once my, my mortgage is paid off or once I've completed this education or once I've done this and there's always something that needs to be done first for our own selves. And sometimes God's just waiting to see, okay, what is your response? Will you say yes to him? And that's going to look different for different people. Not everybody's going to get on a plane to Pakistan, and I get that. Not everybody should. But there's people that every single one of us can impact. There's wounds that surround every single one of our lives. From the the lady who lives next door who's isolated and can't get out for a shopping to the person in the coffee shop who's always alone day after day, to that family member who's just always mad at life. There's one in every family who's just angry at life all the time. Well, there's someone that every single one of us can reach out and touch if we would just have eyes to see and then a heart that says, okay, Lord, help me to reach out and touch that wound that in doing so, I might be so transformed to look all the more like Jesus. In closing today, I wanna say, you know, sometimes we just need to say enough's enough enemy. Enough's enough enemy of taking ground in my family, the prodigals, the broken, the kids that have gone away. Enough is enough. Enough is enough of kids being trapped in slavery around the world. And I know not all of you can come with us on the mission field, but my prayer today is that an army would arise that says, yes, we've seen these wounds and we're going to touch these wounds. As you walk out, I want to challenge, God might speak to some of your hearts to become a freedom builder. We want to ask as many as get puts on on your heart for 20 pounds a month. We want you to stand with us. If you're able to help us reach out into these places, reach out into the darkest of dark because enough is enough. I don't want one more mercy to be broken on my watch. And if enough is enough that the enemy can't take any more ground, we want to bring freedom. We want to bring an end to modern day slavery. We want to bring down the giant of slavery, but we can't do it alone. If God speaks to any of your hearts and you want to stand with us, all we ask is you fill out the form. It's on the back table. Please fill it out with your information. And I would love you to hand it to me personally because you might never meet these kids who you're making a difference to. But I want to say thank you on behalf of the kids, on behalf of the ones that you won't meet on this side of eternity, but on the other side of eternity, you will. On their behalf, I want to personally say thank you. But every single one of us can touch a wound of some sort. Father, I pray this morning, would you speak to our hearts? God, we want to say yes to whatever it is you've got for our lives. We want to say yes to your will done in your way that we might impact the least, the last and the lost. Father, would you use us to say enough is enough where the enemy is taking ground. Enough is enough when nations are being taken over and dominated and literally on the brink of World War III, enough is enough. God, in our own communities, in our own families, in a world that is so broken and so hurting, would you rise up your bride to say enough is enough, not on my watch. God, would you open our eyes to see the wounds 
And then would you stir our hearts, Holy Spirit, so that we, just like Thomas, would begin to touch wounds and see our own lives transformed. Father, use us, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name, to end exploitation, to end the vulnerable being hurt anymore. In Jesus' name, have your way. Amen.